Welcome to the Haber Show. I'm Tom Haberstroh. Welcome to the Haber Show. I'm Tom Haberstroh. That's Amin Al Hassan. The secret's out. Amin was late to the show, and you had our esteemed guest, Caitlin Cooper, waiting all this time. We're just throwing around some Indianapolis, Indiana references. My in-laws have family in Indiana, so we did that. We already covered all that amazing stuff that you are really upset you missed. All seven minutes, huh? We also we also debated here basketball player versus Hooper. Who is the most Tim Duncan basketball player in the NBA? Just very fundamental, not flashy. As May said, really frustrated how often he would use the glass rather than just dunking the ball. Tim Duncan. That's funny because I took you to think that Tim Duncan was, in description, someone who learned basketball from a book. That was Joel Anthony. That was Joel Anthony, literally. But Tim Duncan is the closest thing to that and also actually being good at it. Because if you think about it, Tim Duncan wasn't a basketball player until a hurricane destroyed his swimming pool that he practiced swimming at. And so then he had to, like, figure out what else to do. And someone said, hey, you're tall. Try this. And that that's pretty much started Tim Duncan on the path to basketball. And even as you watch him play, and he was one of the greatest of all time, it still reeked of someone who learned basketball from, like, reading a manual. Albeit someone who paid attention oh, during the manual. So mean. I'm just saying. These are all backhanded compliments here. It's not. He's amazing. He's incredible. Okay. Well, Caitlin Cooper, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us on the Haber Show. She probably knows the Indiana Pacers inside and out better than anybody on the intranet. She's over at Indy Cornrows. I want to know, Caitlin, is this fun for you coming on to discuss the the implosion of the Indiana Pacers and just that they're now right on time? Everyone's ooh, let's pick this team apart. Let's. I want Demonis Sabonis, but I don't want to give up anything for him. Ooh, Miles Turner on my team. Like, does this is this enjoyable for you, Caitlin? No, the whole process isn't that enjoyable. The other night, I was still getting direct messages from people at like two and three in the morning. Like, do you think that? the Pacers would accept this for this. I was like, I don't know. I don't even know what their plan is right now. And and quite frankly, like the Pacers can look like a completely different team from one day to the next. They can lose three straight. And you're thinking like, Oh wow. Like if that, that game against the heat that they lost recently before these two wins, you're looking at it. And it's like, if they win that game without Jimmy and bam, it means nothing. If they lose it, it means quite a bit. And then two games later last night, they have like all these good vibes and look like they're just going about their business. Looked amazing last night. Yeah. Against the Knicks, it was just like, wow. In the fourth quarter, Miles Turner, like a couple two-way plays that you're like, oh, that's, yeah, that's peak Miles Turner. What a shocking coincidence. You mean it happened to the vaunted Knickerbockers, you see? Huh. Maybe we should just press the pause button on imploding this whole thing. Hmm. Right, exactly. I mean, yeah, because I mean, the Wizards and the Knicks, to be fair, like I do think the Pacers did some things better in those games from what we've seen, but both teams were on the second night of back-to-backs. The Pacers had rest advantages in both, and the Knicks' effort level, as we know, like both teams are kind of sliding, but the Knicks' defense had quite a few problems last night too, so you got to take it with a grain of salt. Not just last night, Caitlin. Yeah. (laughs) Duarte pretty much ate Evan Fournier's lunch, so. That's been a consistent theme throughout the season for the New York Knickerbockers. It's funny because when you look at the Pacers roster, the number of players you could say, hey, that's a good player. I'd want him on my team. He's very deep. And I'm not saying I'd want him as my eighth guy. These are guys that'd be starters. Brogdon, Levert, 
Sabonis, Turner. Like you keep going, you go through the list. You're like, why is it? even Duarte as a rookie? You're like, this guy should be a contributor on a winning team. You look at their coaches, Rick Carlisle. He's a guy with a track record of success, and something just doesn't add up in what the Pacers' final product is. And so, Caitlin, going into the season, knowing the roster, knowing the coach, and now seeing where they are right now, where it's like wave the white flag levels. What's been the biggest surprise, I guess, for you? Yeah, just to back it up, to provide like a subtle history lesson if people aren't familiar with where the Pacers have been at. When Nate McMillan was let go and they hired Nate Bjorkren, like the Pacers were a top six defense under Nate McMillan. Nate Bjorkren comes on and when he's being introduced, like a lot of what he's saying is just talking about the defense. Like we want to be this very disruptive, aggressive defense. And he starts telling people like, we're going to play triangle and two. We're going to play box and one. It was going to be very shape-shifting. And pretty much everything they did was like the Raptor scheme copied and pasted. He just didn't quite have the <laughs> yeah. same touch for deploying it as Nick Nurse did. And, and quite frankly, like the Pacers pieces just didn't fit. They didn't have those twitchy length, you know, defenders to be doing what the Raptors do. So it didn't work. And by the second half of the season, it was looking really bad by the time they were like dropping like flies with injuries. So then, you know, this season comes along and in my mind going over the summer, I'm like, if they can just get back to playing a normal defense that makes sense for this team and Rick Carlisle with the um, reputation he has for offense, it felt realistic to me that they could get back to being a playoff team if things broke right. And obviously then they got off to a tough start before the season even started. TJ Warren's foot isn't healing as quickly as they expected. I mean, even Edmund Sumner, who was a nice role player for them towards the back end, ruptured his Achilles. Like then Karis LeVert, oh, his back is fractured. So, I mean, to this point in time, they've still never seen the projected starting five that that front office envisioned play a single minute of basketball together yet because Karis LeVert came over after Victor. I mean, well, yeah, he was traded for Victor and TJ Warren was already hurt at that point in time. So to some degree, I understand why they rolled it back and, and, wanted to see what it looked like. And I do think that injuries have played a part in this, but then when you watch them in these close games, when they get into crunch time, I don't personally think it's just a matter of bad luck. Like they have had been on the wrong side of some calls and stuff that's gone wrong. But at the same time, um, which this was a reverse against the Knicks, but in the prior game against the Knicks, Alec Burks was really pressuring Alec, um, Malcolm Brogdon and the pressure seemed to be bothering them. Brogdon's not a natural point guard. He's a guard who can handle, make plays, but, I don't look at Brogdon in the same way that I look at even it. <laughs> this is a little service to Tom Havishaw. I don't even look at him like an Ish Smith, right? As someone who can break a press, make a play. Like Brogdon to me is a two guard who can handle way more than a point guard who can shoot. Yeah, and I, I think that that's probably accurate. I mean, when he came over from the Bucks, he said he thought his best position was point guard, and it seemed pretty clear that that was more what he wanted when he came to the Pacers, like after having sharing, obviously, with ball handling responsibilities with Giannis, but as well as Eric Blood. So that was something that he wanted, and I, I think he's good at it. I mean, his playmaking's been more reliable than Laverts to this point in time, which is a little bit surprising. I'm sure we can get into some of that later, but in that game, just as an example, they were getting pressure. They couldn't get into stuff really easily, and then they were also looking to the bench a lot for play calls. And after they would get a defensive rebound, it was kind of a slowed, controlled pace. And that continued up in the game in Detroit the next day or the next game when they only had 10 points over the final 10 minutes of that game. So when they got back after that, they went 0-3 on that road trip. The starters got benched in Charlotte. They get back home for the next game against New Orleans. And the coaching staff really relaxed a lot of the play calling. And they've been playing more random flow game to this point. But, I mean, Sabonis' role has been somewhat perplexing to me. I mean, clear back to preseason. 
why they were having him in the corner somewhat. I mean, he really blossomed under McMillan and Bjorkren with his ability to facilitate offense at the elbows, run through the post. And to this point, I mean, he's averaging fewer post-ups than Kristaps Porzingis did in Dallas. And that's felt like, you know, they wanted, they really emphasized togetherness in preseason. And it's kind of felt like in order to accomplish that, they felt like they needed to have this more five out perimeter oriented scheme. And Sabonis still has a role in that, that I think Rick Carlisle values, but it's like, they don't really have the shooters for that. Like, especially when uh, Chris Duarte was also dealing with a shoulder injury for a prolonged period of time. So there's moments where I feel like they need to reshape the offense in other ways. And some guys are better at reading and reacting in flow game than others and just ironing out some stuff. But the last two games, it's felt like they figured some of it out. I don't know that it really changes my opinion of their ceiling, though. Yeah, like when I look at this team, I see the fact that their point differential points to a team that should be 15 and 12. Instead, they look at 11 and 16. They have the 10th best adjusted net rating in the NBA once you account for their schedule. So I guess in a sense, do they need to trade a big piece to shake things up? Or is this a case where things will, as the sample size gets larger, things will write itself and they will be one of the better teams in the Eastern Conference, Caitlin? Well, I mean, I think that's part of the benefit. I don't think that they have to be in a hurry necessarily with it. I mean, take it with a grain of salt. They came out last night after the game and most of the players said, like, we want to be here. We're professionals, you know, that type of stuff. (laughs) Rick Carlisle said, like, we talked to them when the report came out or ahead of the report coming out, you know, said, we believe in this current group. But, you know, trades can always happen, which is the reality for any player in the NBA. I mean, I think they did and said the right things. You can interpret that how you will, but um, I don't think that they necessarily have to be in a rush. They came out, like I said, and and some of this is kind of cliche, but like there was a lot more activity from players on the bench being into the games, players celebrating each other's successes, a little bit better communication than like in the Miami Heat game, there was actual frustration boiling over on the court with players really getting on each other. So it feels like, you know, if you want to be patient and evaluate it, you could, but they're also in a place where they rank very low in attendance right now. Um, you watch their games and it feels like you can hear a pin drop in there at times. What is that about? Like, come on, this is Indiana. They love basketball. The Hoosiers, all that. Do they? Do they? Like, I, I'm, I'm going to say this Why right now. Why don't we ask our guest no, no, who's no, no, living no, no, no. in Indiana and lives and breathes but Indiana I feel, basketball? I feel like there's, a, like there's a hint of like a little bit of bias, not towards you, Kate, but just in general. If you ask someone from Indiana, does Indiana love basketball? Oh, no, it's our favorite thing ever. Attendance in Indiana hasn't been great in quite a while. That's not like a recent thing. It's been a while since Indiana's attendance hasn't been stellar or uh, monumental. And so, like, I, but they think they hold on to that, like, as far as, like, no, but we love basketball more than any other state. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't think you're inaccurate with that. Like when I was growing up and I won't speak for the entire state, but in my corner, like I grew up in a football area. So, and the people that watched basketball watched IU and they went to high school games. So I was literally the only Pacer fan that I knew, like nobody talked about that team. And then, you know, and some of the stuff that I don't really like about how, I mean, you've seen in the documentary now that Jermaine O'Neal produced with the brawl. I do think that that played part of a part in negative ways. Some of the way some of those players were referred to um you can take that how you will but like in terms of current circumstances i think that the tv deal is impacting it because valley sports you can't you can't watch the pacer games on on i believe hulu or youtube tv so if you don't have dish you 
can't watch the game. So that's been the case for the last year. So if a team, if people aren't at home actively watching them, they don't really feel connected. I've noticed a lot of fan apathy in general towards the team of feeling like, you know, in their opinions that they've run the same roster back. We don't have a superstar player. Where is this going type of thing? And then also just the pandemic. Like I'm not going to tell people whether they feel comfortable going to arenas or not. And that could be a part of it too. But yeah, the attendance has definitely been down. Those issues are uh, like are pre-pandemic. Obviously, the pandemic has hit everybody, but I, I think those numbers for Indiana have been pre-pandemic. And again, Indiana as a state has always positioned itself as very, we're the purest form of basketball in the sense of what you just described. People that you were uh, grew up with who were huge fans of high school and college basketball, not quite fans of pro basketball. And to me, like, those are the things that well, I always cringe at when people point to Indiana's rich history of basketball. I say, well, that rich history is only kind of applied to when the Pacers were good. And I guess kudos, it hasn't always been star dependent because I would say that uh, the Jermaine O'Neal Pacers weren't star dependent. Reggie was an aging superstar, and Jermaine O'Neal, while he might have been a bigger, a bigger star, run our test. Those guys weren't national stars. They were stars locally. And then going back, Reggie, as far as a national star in the early 90s, wasn't really there until the mid-90s when that happened. And before that, Chuck Person and George McGinnis and all these guys that you go through the Pacers history, they weren't guys that were selling product in New York and Miami and and, uh, Los Angeles. They were very much local stars. So... The idea that, oh, because Indiana doesn't have, like, a big-name star, I kind of reject that. I don't think that that's something that really had been a priority for the local audience up until this point, and I guess maybe it's because of the lack of success. Yeah, I mean, you saying that about the purity of the game is kind of funny in retrospect because um, lately the Pacers have had some problems with waning effort at times in games where you can point out and see like, oh, people aren't getting back and stuff. So last night, you know, they kind of did the reverse Knicks and were really getting up and pressuring the ball. And I think that that impacted um, their ability to get the ball to Julius Randle and trigger some stuff. And afterwards, Rick Carlisle talked about like, we need to respect the purity of the game in Indiana. And like, that was stuff that's been brought up. That was been brought up to me as a kid. Like, you don't know how many times people would talk to me like oh why do you watch that they don't run any plays and that's just about guys going after money like that those were narratives that i was around regularly when i was growing up so mm. i think that i think that i mean kind of gets it i think that he sees it well i remember 2013 eastern conference finals i covered game six for espn and i went to the game and i was expecting like this amazingly loud crowd game six eastern conference finals paul george roy hibbert david west um this was peak peak Indiana Pacers basketball and the place was not full. Like the attendance, the official like attendance was a sellout, but you go into the arena and there are pockets of empty seats for game six against the Miami heat, LeBron James, Dwayne Wade. And I was just blown away by that. Caitlin was the idea that this could be the peak of your NBA season and it's not a sellout and it wasn't loud. It wasn't like a crazy atmosphere. And that really like changed the way I thought about this whole Indiana basketball thing is that, you know, at the, you have a chance two wins gets you into the finals and you still can't sell out your home arena. Yeah, I mean, even that season, I remember, I forget which team was in the building. And I don't think that this has necessarily been consistent across, but, you know, the Lakers come into town and there's going to be a lot of Laker fans in the building. And I remember when George Hill was playing there, 
he like made the reference of ketchup and mustard and was like, they must've been playing some team that has red in their colors. I can't even remember who the opponent was. And he was like, there's no mustard in the stands. It was all ketchup. We need our fans to be supporting us. And like, it was probably Toronto now that I think about it, but yeah, I mean, that was a point. Really? That was the thing that he said. You can't lose an attendance battle to Toronto. <laughs> it's like a seven hour drive, I think. And there was, there was little fans that like bust <laughs> down to, to Indy to watch that game. As I recall. Do you want to play a game, an impromptu game of Tom's trivia that Tom is not the one lobbying the trivia? Do you want to do that, Tom? Yeah, I'd love to. I need a DNP rest on Tom's trivia this week. Really? Mays apparently has some trivia. Do you as well? I do. When was the last time the Pacers ranked in the top half in the league of attendance by percentage of capacity, not by total? Yeah, that's the key. The last time, I mean... It- 2001. Yeah, I was going to say maybe the season whenever the brawl happened is what my guess was going to be because there was a lot of enthusiasm leading up to that year after they had played the Pistons. So let's go with that. You are right. It goes all the way back, ladies and gentlemen, all the way back to the earliest days of ESPN tracking this, right? This is great filibustering by Amin, what he's doing right <laughs> it now. Is. It, it is, is great filibustering. He's he's pulling it up. He's trying to click the button and it's loading. ESPN, what does ESPN stand for, Amin? ESPN.com. ESPN is the Entertainment Sports and Programming <laughs> Network. Remember that? Yep. yep. 2001. Thank you. They were tied in terms of capacity for first. They sold out every game in 2001, which is the season right after they went to the finals. Yeah. Ever since then, they've been lower half and mostly, to be honest with you, bottom third of the league in percentage of capacity. Again, we're not talking about 18,000 versus Chicago that has a huger stadium that's 22,000 or whatever. We're just talking about, did you fill up your building? And the Pacers did not fill up their building most of the last 20 years. Yeah, I mean, you got people in high school basketball gyms a lot. Like, I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous. You're probably like smirking at me right now, but like, that's a literal reality. That they're competing with high school basketball is what you're saying. Yes, yes. I mean, I saw Dan Burke have that exact quote several years ago. Rob Mahoney at the Ringer did a profile on the Pacers and um, Dan Burke, who's now the defensive coordinator with the Sixers was like, really, we have to compete with high school? Like they were talking about the the attendance stuff back then. And it, I mean, I do think that's a reality. Like people in Indiana do go out for, for high school basketball games, but um yeah, I don't know why the NBA is what it is. That's never been my opinion. Like my dad, when I was growing up, my dad was, was like, I want to watch the best basketball players in the world. So when I was watching, that's what I watched. I didn't personally watch a lot of college basketball. So um, our reality was different, but I do know that that exists amongst a lot of people in my state. So you lived in a gym. Your dad was a, a high school, big time high school basketball coach. Yeah, yeah, he was coaching basketball and I was playing at the time. So yeah, I mean, he even, he even deployed a play from the Spurs that he called Argentina. That was a play from Monte Ginobili. That's how much he loved the NBA. So we were very much outliers in the, what we consumed of basketball. Manu Ginobili, who's that? Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> yeah. probably what the players said to him. This is how Man who gets open, guys. All right, here we go. Who man of who? Sorry, what? <laughs> Time honored tradition of in basketball is to name plays after like the most ridiculous geographic things. Well, in the in, in the defense, that was actually an Argentinian national team play that the oh, Spurs actually oh, okay. ran. So that's why it was called that. But yes, I can see the ridiculousness of it. We had a player called Elbow Boston, and it was just like, why? Because the Celtics ran it. <laughs> that was the entire justification. Why we call the Elbow Boston? Elbow sack. Why? We stole it from Rick Adelman. So I was like, ah, like, there was just little, really little 
ingenuity into the naming protocols for the plays that we ran. We just ran them. So, I mean, are you like a white noise sleeper? Do you need like city noise? Do you need someone talking to you as you sleep? Every night when I go to bed, I put on a DC movie. Maybe it's uh, Suicide Squad. <laughs> Maybe it's the Batman with Robert Pattinson. But I need something extremely boring to put me to bed. Wow. I can't believe you would do that to them. I hate hard with a mean right there. And there goes our sponsorship. For me, I do like the rain white noise. Uh-huh. Not just the white noise, because white noise we do for the kids, the toddlers. But I have so prioritized sleep because after doing all of these science articles on the power of sleep, and that's when you like build up all of your memory, your testosterone, like all of these hormones and all these, if you're, if you're working out, if you're running, you need sleep. LeBron James famously is like a big sleeper. I'm always curious when he's watching the late game. Not very often. Because you know what makes LeBron James King James, I mean? Crown. <laughs> he might wear a crown while he sleeps. But it's sleep. It's those Zs. It's catching those Zs. It's catching those flies. That's right. Sleep is his superpower. And Calm is the number one app for sleep and meditation. Calm has teamed up with LeBron James to help you activate the power of sleep. And I've tried it before, and man, it does help. You know what also helps is a really boring book. I get through like five pages now. My buddy, Kevin, told me, read in the morning, not at night. And I was like, I get it, but it also helps me put to sleep. The Calm app also helps. Here's what you do. Start reading in the morning. Start using the Calm app at night. Ah, yes. LeBron and Calm know one thing. Your mind is like any other muscle in your body. But you don't have to be a world champion to learn how to train it. Calm can help you train your brain so you sleep better, you reduce your stress, and perform at your best, just like King James. You know, you always think that the idea is you just got to power through. You got to grind all night. Nah, that stuff is like the 1990s. That's the Oscar Robinson days, right, me? Did I say Robinson? Havlicek. Never slept. Never slept. Just powered through. Didn't believe in the power of sleep. For LeBron, sleep is a critical part of his mental fitness routine. As he says, quote, getting good sleep and finding time to rest is one of the most valuable things I can do for my body and mind. From the sound of rain falling on leaves to bedtime sleep stories, calm puts me to sleep within minutes. That's right, LeBron. I'm right there with you, which means I wake up ready for any challenge, unquote. So if you head to calm.com, that's C-A-L-M dot C-O-M slash Habershow, not Haberstrow, Habershow, H-A-B as in boy, E-R-S-H-O-W. For a limited time, I mean, you'll not get 10%. No. You'll not get 20%. No. Not even 30%, I mean. 32%? Nope. Oh, that's the big number. 40%. That is the same. Steph Curry shooting from 28 feet or beyond. 40% off a Calm premium subscription. With Calm, you have access to the nature scenes that LeBron loves, like those rain on the leaves. And so much more, like sleep stories, meditations, all so you can be ready for the challenges that life throws your way. I mean, for a limited time, our listeners can join LeBron James. Yes, that LeBron James in using Calm and get a 40% discount. That's right. I didn't believe it either. 40% discount on a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash Haber Show. Unlock content to help you focus, ease stress, and sleep better. Get started at calm.com slash Haber Show. That's C A L M.com slash H-A-B-E-R-S-H-O-W.
Rick Carlisle's offense leaves much to be desired in your opinion so far, Caitlin? I mean, some of the reporting that came out today, I don't know that I would go that far. I mean, I think it's sometimes players are still getting on the same page, but I do think some of the Sabonis stuff has been interesting. And now there was a report at The Athletic today where Miles Turner was quoted saying that he's dissatisfied with his role and that um, he, th- he sees himself or like he thinks that the franchise sees him as a glorified role player and that, you know, he wants to have more of those opportunities and, and kind of like, I'm somewhat sympathetic to that because I do think he's improved in certain ways this year. Like I can see that he's been better at finding opportunities for himself as a cutter. They use a lot of 45 cuts with him. His shot has improved. He's shooting the three better. If somebody does come out to him, he has a one, one dribble three that he can still get off. Um, he's been better at ducking in and, and looking for that. I don't think his teammates always find him. So I, I get it to an extent, but then the other piece of me is like, there, there needs to be some accountability there as well, because I mean, you haven't been playing with Sabonis your entire career. Like you were starting at the five for a couple of years before Sabonis was traded. And when he was traded to the Pacers, Sabonis was coming off the bench. And then there were other moments like in the bubble when Sabonis had plantar fasciitis and Miles Turner was playing exclusively at the five. So, and then when you kind of watch it, which they want to play, like I said, since, since that 0-3 road trip, they've been doing a lot more random offense and flow games. So if you want to play like that, a lot of your opportunities are going to be more dependent on you, in my opinion, and how you're reading things and whether you're going to, you know, set a flare screen and slip, or you're going to roll hard to the basket, or you're going to find cuts or what manufacture angles for passes, that type of stuff. So, um, as I think it said in the article that Rick Carlisle was, I mean, it, it's not a direct quote. I'm not, I'm paraphrasing here. Like, well, we're not pigeonholing him. We want him to find those opportunities. And it, it sounds to me that my interpretation is, is that Miles wants to be more involved as the screener and be doing more at the five when Sabonis is out there, when they're both playing. And it's like, okay, but, and this is what I wrote clear back in preseason when I was like, why is Sabonis in the corner? Like, it's kind of detrimental to both people at that point. Cause like a screen from miles, isn't going to generate you as many options as a screen for Sabonis. Cause first and foremost, Sabonis is a much better screener. And also he's a better playmaker. So if somebody meets him, he's, he can make stuff. He keeps his head on a swivel. He finds places to kick out. And also if Sabonis is in the corner, probably nobody's guarding him. So then it like, it just, it's creating awkwardness and it, it just doesn't necessarily feel like role optimization to me at that point, but it looked like last night against the Knicks. I mean, they ran the very first play of the game for miles. It was a horns twist play with miles coming off an exit screen. So it felt like they were making a deliberate attempt. Like, Hey, we're going to try to do some of this. He probably set more ball screens last night than I've seen. I mean, I have it on my Twitter account if people want to look at mm. it, what the results were there. So you can judge that timing by how you will. But I think that they also tried to work with his footwork a little bit so that like when you watch the bonus in a pick and roll situation, he'll use a little hop step so that he rolls harder to the basket. And it looked like Miles was trying to do some of that just by my eye so that maybe he could make himself more available on the roll because finding the roll has also just been kind of a weird niche thing that the Pacers haven't been very good at for the last like week or so up to these last two games where like, even if they're getting blitzed and Sabonis is there and you could be getting inside out threes, it's like, no, we, we're going to reject that stuff and we're going to pass it to the other guard. And then that guard's going to dink around for a little while and the ball goes everywhere except for the most obvious place it should go. So that's my little summary. If that gives you guys an update. I guess my question would be, do you think it's more of a case of, he wants to be more of a focal point offensively, or he just wants, hey, when I set my screen and I roll hard, look for me sometimes. I'm wide open. Yeah, this is the old Roy Hibbert Shaq thing, right? If you want me to bust my ass on defense, I need to get some love. If I'm going to bust my ass rolling to the rim, find me. There are levels to that, Tom, because some guys are set the screen, roll hard, you didn't look for me, what the hell? And then some guys are like, 
on the block, give it to me. Feed the dog if you want the dog to guard your house. Shaq was like that. Dwight Howard is like that. And again, various levels of actual effectiveness at that. Because Shaq is like, all right, I'll get it. Dwight Howard, it's like, you're not good at that. But how many times did we watch Pacers basketball where the very first possession was just a post up for Roy Hibbert? <laughs> you got to do it just to make him pace it a little bit and then get into the flow of basketball. Same thing that happened with us in Phoenix with Amar Stoudemire, who didn't guard the house or any of that stuff. But we knew he'd be better defensively <laughs> if you just call the first two plays for him and then run, run the rest of the game as it is, right? Versus, like, guys who literally, like, I think of a Clint Capella, where at some point, like, I set 100 screens and I rolled 99 times, and 99 times I didn't get a touch. And it's like, what am I doing here? And so when I look at Miles Turner and I, I read that article. Shots to Jared Weiss. It was absolutely very well reported. How often do you see a coach, players, and the GM all going on the record at a time like this? On the record in the same article. And by the way, not for a market that he covers. Yeah, he covers the Celtics. When I read those remarks, and I was on the air when that article came out, so I had to kind of skim through it. But it's like, as I'm reading it, I'm saying, this sounds like a guy that's, you know, he, he talks about like the game where he scored 40 points. Like, well, and then the next game was business as usual. It's like, I look at him as, yeah, you are a business as usual kind of guy. You scored 40 points. That's great. But at the end of the day, your role Rim protect, rebound, uh, set hard screens, roll hard, and every once in a while, pick and pop, and we'll find you. And I'm reading this, and maybe I'm tinged by kind of like me getting turned off by some of the things he's saying, but I'm tinged by like this guy thinks like he should be a guy that's getting fed as a primary focus of the offense versus someone who gets his offense as a residual of things that are happening on the court. And so, you know, Caitlin, I defer to you. You, you watch this game, uh, this team, obviously a lot more than I do. Is that your feeling? Is your feeling that like, hey, he just wants a couple more touches? Or is this a guy who thinks, hey, I should be like, you know, one of these great regarded centers in the league. And instead, I'm just a glorified role player. I should be Sabonis. <laughs> I would be an all-star if I got the ball. I mean, that was more my impression. What what Tom just said was more my impression. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it kind of comes across like maybe he realizes that right now Sabonis can do some of that better, but he feels like over the last two years, he's been somewhat held back because Sabonis has been there. Because when he was in media day, he and again, this isn't a direct quote, um, he made mention of like, I want more touches and that's what I've wanted from this organization for the last two years. And it was always in reference to the last two years, which would mean that's when Sabonis became a starter. I mean, that's the dots that I connect in that regard. And then he said that they have five 20 point per game starters in the starting lineup, which implies that he sees himself as a 20 point per game score. So, I mean, you can think of that as you want. Like when he played the wizards, that 40 point game was referenced. I wrote an article about that because I wrote about each of them because I mean, some of it has become a little bit reductive with both Sabonis and Miles because Sabonis has made some improvements on the defensive end this year, and Miles has made some improvements in what you know his off-ball role is offensively. Um, Miles in that game, the Wizards were pretty much not guarding him. <laughs> I mean, that was the case last season too. Like, I think of his threes, which I mean, some of this is a little bit hinky because I don't think that the tra- tracking like measures limbs, but like of his threes last year, I think around thirty percent were contested. Like, I mean, even just Tom Thibodeau, if you look at this matchup, because I think what Amin said was correct—that Miles said, "Well, then a few games later, it didn't happen or whatever." Well, sometimes that's because the coverage is completely different. So, like, they play the first game against the Knicks, and they had Mitchell Robinson 
on Miles and sagging off. And Julius Randle was guarding Sabonis. So Miles goes off for seven of 10 from three. And that's great. Like if people aren't going to guard you, make them pay. Keep shooting the ball. Tremendous. Then they play the next game and Julius Randle is guarding Miles. So like it, it made them go to Sabonis more. Like I, I just think that somewhat it, it can be a matter of like, I don't think you need to look at the box score and be like, okay, you need to have this many shots every single game. Like there's going to be differences there. And I think there's a difference between how Sabonis' role has been altered and, and what Miles is seeing. Cause like in Sabonis' case, it's very much like, okay, we're going to play this different style that isn't so much you as a fulcrum anymore. And we've de-emphasized some of that stuff. Whereas with Miles, it's like, it seems to me like he doesn't want to just be kind of more what I envision him as in his like ideal spot is this floor spacing, cutting. Like if he can get in on a duck in, if he, if he sees his spots roll and that, I mean, it comes across like he wants to play the five and it, it doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me when they're both on the floor that you would have, you know, somebody who at the current moment, maybe with reps, maybe with more reps and he does this, it changes. But at the current moment is, is worse than the other person who's doing it. Is it a floor balance thing? So to me, I look at him the same way you look at him. This is a guy who would be great if he accepted his role as I cut, I pop, I seal, I set hard screens, I roll hard. And he, to me, it appears that he wants a couple of like, everybody clear out. Hold on. We got to get Miles one. And he's on the block. And now we're all sitting and throw it to him and watch him bang and bang and kick it back out and repost and all that stuff. So is it, do you think that's a case of, just the roster imbalance because he's him and DeMontis are kind of operating in the same areas or is this like a true case of a guy who thinks no no even if I was with a floor spacing big if I played with like Ryan Anderson or someone like that who just all I do is come up to the three-point line and just chaining fry hang out in space would he still be kind of like begging for these opportunities of one-on-one coverage on the post? I didn't know that I necessarily interpreted that he wanted to necessarily play in the post. And his in his defense, there are moments throughout this season where he or Sabonis have ducked in and the guards have taken like a five count to even think <laughs> about throwing it in there. Like in the first half against Detroit, they had several turnovers trying to do post-entry passes. Your dad would be so upset. Yeah. I mean, your dad, the, the coach, yeah. how, how come guards today can't throw an entry pass? Right. But in this case, like somewhat like last year when you're running specific plays, and I, I think that Sabonis is more a guy who's very good at playing out of pocket, pay, playing random. But like when you're running like wedge screens for him to slide to the block and get open and have his guy on his back, I think that the guards are more prepared, like, hey, this is the thing that's coming. I need to do this versus when it comes up more organically, they're not necessarily always looking for it. So that might be some of the source of miles. Like, I don't if if I mean, I don't I think it was more coming from him wanting to be involved within the action rather than like being the six foot eleven shooting guard, wanting to be the screener. Because I mean, he doesn't really have that much of a post game. Like his main post move is be in the mid post and turn around and face up and shoot over a small guy. Like I don't once in a while, he might show like a rip move, a rip through, but that's, that's not a lot. I don't know that that's something you would go through. Like, I mean, he, again, he's shown improvements, but when they were in the bubble and Sabonis wasn't there, you guys probably remember, like they were running switches and, and some of it was Nate McMillan. Like the offense was very much one and done and hitchy, but it was like Brogdon just isolating against Bam over and over again. Cause it didn't seem like they had trust to be throwing it into miles. And in part, you know, TJ Warren had had that, you know, magical experience in the bubble. So then the heat were really focusing in on him. So if like TJ Warren comes off an Iverson cut, 
Bam was coming off of Miles and flooding that strong side. So then like Tyler Hero is over there on the opposite block. And it's like what Amin said right there. That's when you have to seal. That's when you have to get in front of that guy and bury him. And then you're creating your own opportunity. And sometimes this season, he's been better at that. Like you'll watch him for a couple games and it's like, yeah, that that's the miles that, that they need. And, and that's what he can consistently do. And he'll get more shots and then it'll be another game. And it, it doesn't necessarily happen to that degree. You know, it's funny. I think Sabonis overall is a better basketball player than, than Miles Turner. But I find myself having trouble putting Sabonis in different teams fit wise than I do Miles Turner. You have to accommodate a lot more than you do Miles Turner. I mean, I think that if Sabonis was the player that they moved, which we can get into some of that, but if he was, it seems like to me that would be a deal you would do over the summer because a team would have to prepare for that. Like if you were doing it mid season, it feels like what you're saying that it would be somewhat of a trickier fit to just slide him in. But in terms of some of the stuff that Golden State does, I know that's been floated some places with either one of the Pacer bigs. If you play in Golden State system, you have to be aware of the ball and where Steph Curry is and be able to space and move off of what Steph Curry does and run. You know, you're in the post, but you're in the post because you're running, you know, modified split cuts to find Steph Curry. Like that's all stuff that Sabonis is really good at. Yeah. I think it's kind of interesting because a lot of people bring Miles up in that particular context. And I'm like, that's kind of, if I had to point out what the thing that Miles is worst at, it's probably read and react. And if I had to point out what the thing Sabonis is best at, it's probably read and react. I like his fit with Warriors much better than Miles Turner, especially because you have Draymond as like the, the defensive anchor for that team. And I just feel like you said, I think Sabonis is a lot better at improv offense than, than Miles Turner is. So I actually like that fit better. Counterpoint. Sabonis fits their strengths better. Miles fits their weaknesses better. Because Sabonis, yes, in terms of fitting through that offense and the improv and reading and reacting, especially all the split cuts, 1,000% better. But in terms of if you're going to say, hey, we have a need. What's the need? It's not another big who can play pseudo-Andrew Bogut, high post, this stuff right here, ball above my head, Split cut, this guy going this way, this guy that way. Oh, no one's guarding me. Take one dribble and then dunk it. The need they have is bona fide big man, protect the rim, come out, switch on a pick and roll, guard somebody. And I would trust Miles Turner a whole lot better. Now, offensively, that was the, the concern I had. And especially after the article today, I said, I'm going to say, I don't know if I want this guy. If he's talking about, I am not getting enough touches or looks or whatever. Because coming to Golden State, it, there's automatically an uh, like an acceptance. I got to understand, hey, we might go five possessions, I don't touch it. And then the next five possessions, I'm getting dunks. That's how their offense runs, right? In the same way that if you don't accept it, it looks like uh, Kelly Oubre a, a season ago. Someone who, on paper, he's long, he's athletic, he can shoot the three a little bit. He defends. This guy should be perfect for Golden State. But if he doesn't accept what this thing is about in terms of, hey, sometimes it ain't about you, then you're not right for this place right now. I actually think the greater need for the Golden State Warriors is in crunch time when they throw three three defenders at Steph Curry. Who can punish you in the paint on that? I just think I think when when defenses get bogged where the offense gets bogged down in the fourth quarter and they I know we can do the Draymond Green three on two. Um all day long, but in the fourth quarter, I've want I want Sabonis, who's much more able to get your get you a bucket, not in the very traditional like caveman basketball way, but I have I have a much better feeling about Sabonis playing in that that high uh, 
that high just being able to facilitate after that that three on two, t- you get you get a much better look for, for in my opinion than Miles Turner, who is a little bit more limited uh, with the ball than Sabonis. So, um, Caitlin, uh, I don't want to go through like fake trades here Thank with you. you. Thank I you. think you have the same tolerance for this that as as Amino Hassan, where it just no, I'm done with that. But can we play a little bit of what you think? the Indiana Pacers fans or what kind of player, if all these three players, let's say they put everybody on the table for the Pacers, what kind of player are you looking for with the Pacers to pair with, let's just say, what would be the ideal um, co-pilot to Doma Sabonis to take that next level? Because he's already 25 years old, made an all-star team, and you want to pair Sabonis with what type of player to maximize him? And keep in mind, we're in Rick Carlisle's offense as well. Like, what do you want to see next to Sabonis? So can I just give you a rough archetype? And this is going to be very unpopular. Like, as soon as people in my state hear this, it's not going to be popular. An archetype I would give is Paul George. <laughs> he can both he can both create his own shot. He, he would be a clear top option on the roster automatically. And he can play off of screens. And he's smart in the way that he moves without the ball. So he gives you both of those dynamics because for one, I think one overrated or underrated loss that um, people don't talk about a lot, and it's just a role player, is that Doug McDermott left and went to the San Antonio Spurs. And last year on the Pacers, that was the number one assist combo that the Pacers had was Sabonis to Doug McDermott. Like they were just on a wavelength and the way that he moved and could fly off of those picks and the way that they interpreted like with a late DHO pass or, you know, whatever. I think that you need to find somebody who is the combination of both of those things and he kind of fits it. Um, And just with his overall shooting, I mean, TJ Warren does some of that stuff, but he's not to the caliber of Paul George. So it would be that type of archetype. They need a wing. Like they've needed somebody that can guard those types of players. That was a problem last year. Like just guys like Mikel Bridges, Harrison Barnes, OG Ananobi, all dropped season highs against the Pacers. So um, they've tried to mask some of that. TJ Warren isn't available and he would help in some regards, but like they tried to sign Torrey Craig, but he's not a guy that you're going to have out there like, you know, in the game situations. So Paul George would also offer you that in the, in the defensive archetype. So not popular that that's the player that I named, but just his skill set makes sense to me. Mm, I like that. I mean, can we get Paul George back on Indiana somehow? I think we got a chance. I think we got a shot. Yeah. He's going to be really excited about that. BJ Boston has been killing lately. So yeah. What about Miles Turner? So if they're going to trade Sabonis, what do you, what do you want to see? Right. So in general, I think that they could use more playmaking. So in that particular case, you might be looking at, and obviously Karis LeVert's been floated around and and potentially moving as well, that you would want uh, a point guard who can really orchestrate an offense to a higher degree than what Malcolm Brogdon can and can really get people in their spots because you're going to be losing that hub element from Sabonis. So I think you would want to move Malcolm Brogdon off ball, similar to what Amin referenced earlier, that he would be a two guard who could also run offense if you needed him to. Like, you know, our top options getting trapped. And now, oh, look, what a nice luxury. Malcolm Brogdon can also, you know, run a little bit of offense in that setting. So I think I would look at and and that type of way with Miles. That's why I think Charlotte is probably the favorite here to land Miles Turner is some sort of trade structured around PJ Washington, Book Knight, um, Plumley as just like the, the money filler. filler. Cause I, I love his fit with Lamella ball just as a, a facilitator and someone who spaces the floor. Um, and they need the defense, the, the playmaking, the, sh- the rim protection in the worst way. Well, yeah, because that's another element of it, too. Like, I know Malcolm Brogdon is a, is a good defender when he's guarding 
up a position, but I don't know how many people realize like his point of attack defense, like he really struggles against slower guards. Chris Duarte has to do some of that, which is okay. And they do more switching, but that that's a vulnerability when he's at the one and he's guarding ones. It's crazy. I mean, like thinking about the Indiana Pacers over the last, since the Frank Vogel era started, the Pacers have the third highest win percentage in the Eastern Conference. Behind? Miami. And who would be that second one? Let's see. Boston? Boston's my guess. No, they're right behind Indiana. So Indiana's 458 and 353. Toronto? Um, That's what I was going to say. Toronto. Toronto. And very little to show for it after the Paul George era, of course, with the Nate McMillan era and all that, the tough outs in the postseason there. But they've been a pretty solid NBA team. But the problem is, is that you don't get to pick in the high end of the draft. What's the stat? It's like the, the Indiana Pacers haven't had inside the top 10. So I'm not talking number 10. I'm saying a single digit draft pick since when? What was the last time? I can't even tell you off the top of my head. I would say Reggie Miller. It, it might be Reggie Miller. I'm going to pull this up. It's somewhere in the 80s. Because if you think about it, Paul George is obviously 10. And then before Paul George was just a bunch of guys that were 17, 18, 19 area. Uh, and then all the other great players were kind of acquired via trade. Do you feel that, Caitlin, as a, as a Pacers fan, is that like you haven't had this like number one, top five prospect to get really excited about? We got top five, top nine. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's always a talking point about what you know the franchises, uh, and that's why somewhat when the initial report came out that they were going to rebuild, people were surprised because there had been reporting locally over the summer that Kevin Pritchard thought that this roster might need to go in the direction of a rebuild, and that Herb Simon had pushed back against that because that's not the way that he operates. So, you know, and, and that's why even when I read that report, it said that, you know, they want to go through a rebuild. But when the, then when you read the actual reporting inside, it was like it sounded a lot more like a retool to me. I mean, and then there was subsequent like they don't want to tank for a high draft pick. So um, it sounds more like they just want to find players that can fit in with some of the remaining whoever they end up keeping existing core and continue to try to move on the fly. And maybe realize, you know, hey, if we do make trades, we won't be great this year. But we hope we can, you know, fix some stuff over the summer and come back better, like take a momentary step back. It didn't sound like, you know, we're going to be willing. And that, that's why it's somewhat interesting that Sabonis was available because, like, he has more years left on his contract. So, like, if you're not going to me, I would put him out there in the deal if I was thinking like, hey, we just don't see that this is going to get it done. And then it just becomes a matter of value, you know, asset valuation where whichever one of Sabonis or Turner is going to give us more, you know, bites at the apple and the draft and whatever young prospects we can get, that's which one of them we're going to move. But given that they don't want to do that, I feel like you're kind of in a position where you could be like, Hey, we'll trade some of these guys this year. If this still isn't working next year. And like, maybe we look at it and it's like, Oh, it's a bonuses defense when miles isn't out there, this isn't holding up. And we weren't able to find guys around him. That's going to make this work. He's not in a contract year yet. So you're still able to then move him and move forward in that way. Cause like, I mean, he's only making $18 million a year and he's a two-time all-star. Yep. Like I think it's going to be are good contracts. It's going to yeah. be very hard to find equal value for that guy. Like somebody who a couple weeks ago gave you 16, 25 and 10 in a game, like a person like that's not signing here in free agency, in my opinion. So um, I don't know that I would be super quick to move him unless they have additional, which I shouldn't say unless of course they do have additional information about other dynamics that are going behind behind the scenes that I don't know. About. I was still in diapers when the Indiana Pacers had a, a top nine pick in the draft. That's how long it's been. George McLeod, 1989, Florida State, number seven pick in the 1989 draft. 
That was actually the first year of the modern draft was the last time the Pacers had a top nine pick. It's crazy. So I wasn't even alive. That's why I didn't. <laughs> that was George McLeod. At one point, held the record for most threes attempted in a game. Hey, Maze. Yo. You like betting on sports. I love to bet on sports. I'm addicted to it. How'd you get into that? Well, I have all this information in my brain, and I just feel like I need to use it. <laughs> Let me tell you something, man. I don't have information in my brain when it comes to sports betting, but I do now, ever since I started listening to BetQL Daily. I mean, same note too, bro. That's where I get all my information from. No way, bro. Oh my God, it's so fun listening to Joe Ostrowski, Joe Giulio, and Aaron Hawksworth serve up wagertainment. You like that? I just made it up myself. The sports talk you love with betting insights you need each weekday. Find out where the market is moving across all of the week's biggest sporting events. And if you miss out on the earlier games, guess what? BetQL Daily has you covered there too with recaps from some of the biggest moments in recent sports. If you're not sure where to start with sports betting, start with BetQL Daily presented by FanDuel. Listen weekdays, 9 a.m. to noon Eastern on Odyssey, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. So Sham Sharania in his reporting, was kind of leaning towards Kevin Pritchard has been trying to push for rebuild since 2017. Herb Simon has been very resistant. And now this represents Herb Simon finally breaking and saying, okay, I get it. Retooling on the fly is not going to work. We need to do something a little bit more drastic. Which, again, goes back to the question I asked a lot earlier. In the show, is like I'm kind of surprised that a team that has Malcolm Brogdon and Karis LeVert and uh, TJ Warren and Sabonis and Turner and TJ McConnell, who we now know is out for the year, and you know, uh, I mean, it's a uh, uh, holiday. Like this isn't a bad. Like I've seen bad teams. I've seen bad rosters. That's what I'm saying, man. I'm saying if we let this string roll for a little bit longer. The idea that they just kind of like, ah, this ain't going to work. I'm like, most of your best players are young. You haven't been healthy, but I like, you can't act like, well, we've got a, a team of 33-year-olds and it hasn't worked. So, oh, well, got to give it up. Because I, I believe that the, the Pacers fire sale will be one that's going to be heavily attended around the league. Obviously, Brogdon can't be traded because of that extension he signed. But when you talk about Levert, Turner, Sabonis. I mean, they're going to be, uh, uh, you know, TJ Warren if he's available. They're going to be takers for all these guys are making peanuts. They're making sub 20. If you want to play, the offense is indicative. The, the crunch time offense is indicative of some larger dysfunction within the team or just trust or Rick Carlisle or the pieces don't fit. Because you can argue that that's the truth serum is when things get tight, you can see how the team doesn't trust each other or the or the game plan, what have you. You can say that about the Philadelphia 76ers that in postseason last year, everything rose to the surface in crunch time against Atlanta and then everything exploded. But if you look, I mean, the Indiana Pacers are three and twelve in crunch time, five minute last five minutes, game within five. Their offensive rating is ninety-two in crunch time, which is the sixth worst in the NBA. 
Not the worst. Here are some teams that have a worse offensive rating in close games. Golden State Warriors, Miami Heat, and the Atlanta Hawks. Oh, my gosh. And those three teams, I mean, Atlanta maybe a little bit, are not banging the the, the drum and saying, red flags, we need to blow this thing up. So I kind of feel like a little this is overblown and just ride this ship. Things will be fine. But at the same time, if the goal is to – you know, find a franchise player and find someone to build around. And I think Kevin Pritchard said this in his quotes to Jared Weiss in the, in the athletic is, you know, we, there are many ways to find your star. And he didn't say, and we have our star in Sabonis. He said, there are many ways to find a star. You can go through the draft. You can go through the the trades for us. It's not going to come through free agency because we have to be realistic about Indiana as a destination, but if you're going to find your foundational star, your number one on a championship team, for this team, it's going to be hard to do that with this roster. And it's going to have to come from bottoming out, I think. You pointing that out is very interesting because a lot of times when they talked about this roster over the summer, that was something that was noticeable to me. That it felt like they wanted to keep all five guys on the same pecking order. Like, we don't have any stars. And I've, I've kind of wondered how that goes over at times. And it's like, hey, yeah. I'm a two-time all-star here. Like I, yeah. I've wondered that at times and like sometimes there's also been, which I think Malcolm Brogdon's tried to, you know, take up this mantle, but they're, I mean, Kevin Pritchard himself said at the back end of last season, we don't have a vocal leader. So I've wondered like it, you know, it's kind of like when you're on a committee and there's not a leader of that committee and it's like, Oh, we'll just all make decisions. Like if you're not providing an obvious pecking order, is it become clear? Cause like, there's been a lot of articles that I've seen like, Oh, you know, the Pacers need to build around this guy or this guy. I'm like, they, this team is not built around Sabonis currently. It's not built around miles Turner currently. So like, I, I don't really understand that narrative, but your stat on the crunch, crunch time offense, the Pacers have played, I think the third most crunch time minutes. So they might've played more minutes than some of those teams, but just to provide an example of why they might find this more concerning than just fluky. They played the Lakers at home. And the Lakers, Frank Vogel took all the centers off the court. So I want to say that this was towards the back end of the third quarter. They got outscored 40 to 21 during that time. And they shot 21% from the field. And LeBron was guarding Sabonis. And like, they just didn't want to challenge that. They didn't want to do that. So they took a bunch of threes. And a lot of them were like self-created standstill threes. They were blitzing Brogdon. And then it was like, hey, you know, two miles Turner's point. Carmelo Anthony's guarding you. So we're going to use you as the screener because... You know, when you watch it, that makes sense. Get Carmelo Anthony in space. And then he would slip out and he didn't handle those passes. Like they did it like two or three times and he didn't quite handle it. And then they went away from that. And it just felt like they were struggling to muster offense when they're up against small ball. And yet they, they weren't really willing to leverage their size in those situations either. And that's become somewhat of a familiar dynamic. Now, different caliber of opponent, you're clearly not going up against LeBron James, but when they played the Wizards, it felt like, hey, we've kind of realized some of this, and we actually do need to work on the pocket passes and get Sabonis the ball in the middle of the floor and play inside out at least sometimes. Like, I'm not Shaq on TNT. I'm not like, oh, get on the block, and we need to run this every time. But there does need to be a little bit of a mix and match there. So I, I, I can see where they're going from, but at the same time, like both of them don't sound like they're ready to just be like fire sale. They sound like they're still willing to give time to see if this group can kind of get some momentum here with what they're doing. But I think they're still going to be assessing the market. I mean, I want to get your opinion how, from a front office perspective, how you've seen this play out. Is this the way you got to do it is to let people know, let the newsbreakers know, fire sale, we're going to blow this up and then deal in-house with all the damage control with the players? 
Or do you try to like get the word out quietly and try to make deals on the low? It all happens according to your commitment level. I think if you're, if you look at this and you say, this is never going to work. It's never going to work. It's not working. It hasn't worked now. It's not a couple of tweaks away. It's just not going to work. Then I think the fiduciary duty is to get the highest amount of value for each individual piece and then start over. And I'm not saying you got to go full Oklahoma City, Sam Presti, but I mean, Sam Presti's in a position where he's got at least one player he's, he looks at like, this is a guy for the future who's doing great right now. And then a million draft picks. And Sam Presti, I would say, some of those draft picks came in return for players that are okay, but like, really? You got that much? You got that much, right? So when you look at what Trevor Reza, when you look at what Indiana holds, and that, that's the, again, the original question I asked Caitlin was like, these are good players, man. I'm like, I'd kill for to have any one of these guys on my team. Now, would I want them all together? Would that team actually be good if these were all I had? Maybe, maybe not. But knowing that they are valuable, they are productive, and they are desirable on the market, I think you let everybody know. I don't think there's any, unless you don't believe this is the real thing, right? Like the, it's the old, uh, it's all adage. You're going to go, you go full full bore you put the pedal to the metal you put all the coal in the fire and let's go we're gonna fire sell all this we're gonna, everything's for sale trying to see how many analogies you can go with here or idioms i don't know put all your chips to the middle this is for all chips the marbles the table, the table you're gonna all the marbles you're gonna you're gonna eat everything on the buffet like everything <laughs> like everything if you're committed but you have to be committed and committed comes from not only from you as a general manager in the front office committed comes from the, from the ownership and that's what we know, again, from the reporting is that up to Kevin Pritchard, this would have happened like two years ago, maybe more. But Herb Simon was very adamant, hey, we don't do that in Indiana because we put the best possible product out there to make people you know, respect the fans that pay to come to games. But I think Kevin Pritchard's point has been, look around, Herb. They're not coming to games. Look at our attendance. Look at our percentage capacity again. Like, we have the third highest win percentage in ten in the last 10 years, and still we can't draw, and it's getting worse. So I'm guessing, Caitlin, you were a little bit relieved to see that report. Is that like this seems like a major shift in organizational structure or philosophy? Yeah, I mean, I remain somewhat skeptical that that's what the word rebuild is going to mean. Like, I, I just think that it's more so going to be that I, I don't think it's going to be a full fire sale. I mean, the front office's policy has been, which I'd be interested to know from, I mean, because he clearly has way more information than I do, that they tell the players, like when that report was getting ready to drop, they told the players, hey, you know, we're still wanting to win with this group. And they let people know in prior ways too, like when Miles Turner was linked to Gordon Hayward, that, hey, this trade could happen. Like they try to be upfront and honest with guys. And like, I'm not saying that Orlando didn't do this, but just as a comparison, like, I don't know if you guys knew it, but I was surprised when they traded Nikola Vucevic, like they abruptly veered toward a rebuild and that trade just happened. Like they didn't have to put out like a news blast, like, Hey, every team give your best offer for Nikola Vucevic. Like it, it just seemed like they, you know, they and the bulls are came to that agreement and that's what happened. And it feels like the Pacers could be in a similar position to that, but I don't know how the story got sourced. I don't, 
know if that was coming from the Pacers or if it was coming from other places. I certainly don't know, but it feels like a different approach in that regard where, like you said, like, you know, are you getting out in front of it to let people know that you're open for business? Because at the same time, it seemed like they were surprised that the report came out because there was reports from various reporters that were there that uh, they were rounding the players up to tell them like, Hey, we just want to let you know that we still believe in this group, but trades can always happen. So two different approaches. That's something you say when you act, first of all, I think that should always be the case, right? Like, Hey, we like our group, but something good. Like that shouldn't be something like when things are going wrong, we'll let you know. That's the, that's the approach to every team really. And even the championship, even like even the bucks, right? Like, yeah, Giannis has ha- have to worry, but somebody that Bobby Portis. You think Bobby Portis gets to say, "Ah, oh, I'll be here forever," or Drew Holiday, or, or some of these other guys? Maybe not so much, right? So, to me, I think you say it because first and foremost, probably because your private conversations haven't yielded what you want, right? Orlando got to be discreet because they got a, a deal that I think we can all recognize as like, holy shit, you're giving them that many first-round picks? Make it happen, right? Versus, you know, if I'm trying to get Sabonis out there and people are saying, I'll give you two second-rounders and this guy that I really like that much, you're like, I, I think I can do better. And at some point, you got to say, well, how do I open up that market more? And you, you leak it out for lack yeah. of a better phrase. I think also what we have to keep in mind is getting this out earlier. I think it's an underrated aspect prior to the line, prior to the tra- trade deadline, prior to December 15th injuries happen. And if miles Turner gets hurt or Sabonis gets hurt or Duarte Ooh. or whoever it is, Levert gets hurt. That's your angle. My angle was like, you get it out because someone else might get an injury. And like, well, you know, you need a new center. I got one right here. But I was going to say the flip side is true, too, is that like if Miles Turner hurts his wrist and then he's out until the All-Star break like that, it's almost like strike now, get it out now while they're playing well. Like, I think I think Miles Turner is having his best like PER of of his career. His efficiency is through his through the roof. Like if you're going to sell high on Miles Turner, do it now while he's healthy and playing, whereas you risk injury by by keeping the things close to the vest and not getting them on the trade block, you have a better opportunity to get full value. Right. Because I mean, what I mean said there too, like, I mean, this isn't the first time. I mean, Miles even said that he's like, well, I'm going to be professional. This isn't my first time I've been in a trade rumor. Like, and he wasn't being prickly about it. He was like making a joke. Like this happens to me all the time. It makes me wonder then, like, what is, is that just because the Pacers value is rim protection so much? Or are they just not getting the offers that they would want in return? Because, I mean, this is a thing that's been brought up, like, several years in a row now where it's like, oh, well, you know, the Pacers are gauging the market for Miles Turner. Or they really want Gordon Hayward or they went as po- hard as they possibly could there. And then nothing really comes to fruition. So maybe that leads into some of his frustration with his role as well. Maybe Herb Simon's. The barometer has has changed. Yeah. All right. Well, if we're not going to get Joel Embiid back or Giannis Antetokounmpo back, yes, let's move Miles Turner. Like, who knows? Maybe that's every time that Pritchard takes this to the owner's room, it just gets batted down, even though it is a fair deal. It's tough for me to interpret without knowing what their insider No, Caitlin, you're <laughs> supposed to know. Get inside Herb Simon's I'm home. supposed to recklessly speculate? Yes. Rex Specs. Conspiracy theory. Maze, I hear you have a, a trivia question for us. It's true. I discovered some of my own trivia here. I'm stealing Tom's bit. 
who is the only player since 1980 when they started keeping track of games started with over a thousand games started that never came off the bench started every single game of their career over a thousand games john stockton no carl malone no reggie miller michael jordan no no it's an active player how about that active start at least a thousand games not once coming off the bench never come off the bench ever in their career lebron very close but no booby gibson <laughs> said very close <laughs> said no no not booby unfortunately he's not active anymore i don't think he got to a thousand games wait caitlin's the guest today so i'm thinking pacers paul george yeah he came off the bench early early on your guy tom and not a smith is it chris paul there it is chris paul chris paul is smith 1,114 games played, never came off the bench in his entire career. There's a player who's only come off the bench once, which was in 2007. He's already been named. LeBron. So it's LeBron? So it's LeBron. (laughs) He sprained his finger in December 2007, came off the bench against the Pacers. There you go. There's a connection. And they won that game. And then there's a player... Only three games, and there's a player only five games. The next two are not active anymore. Oh, so it's not Durant, because I'm surprised that Durant came off the bench more than five times. Well, he has to be a top five pick. Oh, Kobe? No, no, Kobe's came off the bench a lot of times. Kobe for that first couple of years. A lot of times, yeah. Oh, not active. Shaquille O'Neal. No, Shaq. Shaq came off the bench later in his career. Kevin Durant. 904 out of 907. So he hasn't quite gotten to 1,000 yet, <sighs> but also three times. Someone who's played more games than Kevin Durant. Keem? It's somebody who had to come in and start right away, but then also didn't have a late career bounce around. So Hakeem went to Toronto. Patrick Ewing? Came off the bench. Patrick Ewing came off the bench. Seattle. Malone was mentioned earlier. He was five times. And then there's one more that's three times. How about David Robinson? No. Is it Stockton? No. Is it Duncan? Yes. God damn it. Two weight guys and Tom got none of them. He's taking a walk. Yeah. Good job. This is becoming a trend. This is becoming a trend, Caitlin. We had Jamal Crawford on the show and Jamal stumped me with the easiest question possible is which player has the most half court heave makes of the last 30 years. And we ran, ran around like 50 names. And Caitlin, do you know the answer is? Is it Jamal Crawford? <laughs> it's Jamal. <laughs> You're natural. How you got lost on that one. Now I'm just like thinking, how did I end up on the same podcast that had Jamal Crawford as a guest? Like I'm feeling incredibly obscure now, in addition to you two. Oh, man. I'm so upset right now, Maze. Good. That's That's how you know it's been a good round of trivia. If somebody's... Just absolutely furious about it. Caitlin, tell the people where they can find your work, please. So my handle is at C2 underscore Cooper. I'm at Indie Cornrows about twice a week, and we do a podcast there too. And then I've done freelance at 538 as well. So you can check me out there. Yeah, I love that gravity piece you wrote for 538. Oh, thank you. That was it was Pacers adjacent because there was rumors that the Pacers were interested in Eric Gordon. So I had looked all that up. I was all ready to write that article. Hoosier! Yeah, and I was like, I, I can't waste this information. This must be published somewhere. I'm coming home. 
I really hope that there's more national articles from you because I think you're fantastic. You're really, really sharp. And you know what? Spread your wings a little bit and get outside the Indiana Pacers here because I think <laughs> nationally you're... I don't know why I'm coaching you on your career here. <laughs> That's Tom's nice way of saying this shit is going down. You need to go onto a ship that's <laughs> going to have some exposure with players and teams that people care about. Get on your lifeboat. Let's go. Use those skills that you have demonstrated and apply them to teams that actually matter from here on out. There was people that were joking about that and asking if I had requested a trade yet. I was like, no, not quite yet. They're like, force a trade to Golden State. People will read your work. I mean, the season has started, sports betting, trying to think of how to take advantage of some of these early fluctuations in the score. Are the Bulls really this good? Warriors, really this good? And should we really be burying some teams that are starting out with a little bit of a rough start? Well, some people aren't really into betting yet, but I'm telling you, it adds so much more to the watching experience. So fun. If you want to get deeper into this stuff, get smarter about betting on sports or just the NBA, you got to get on with the daily tip. Just to see how it feels, Tom, you got to understand that when you're out there with action on the game, it can make what would be a boring game absolutely amazing. Think about this. What if the line on this game I'm watching right now was 12 and a half points, right? Yep. It's a 14-point game under a minute to go. Most people would say, boring, turn it off. But if I got action on the game, I'm watching every last second because I need to see if someone's going to hit that last-minute shot that takes it from 14 to 11 and makes me from a loser into a winner. So the Daily Tip is a podcast that gives you kind of some insights, some edge, make you smarter about betting and just the betting experience. You learn some things. The hosts, Michael Jenkins and Chelsea Messenger, they break down the big takeaways and make sure you know everything you need to get smarter and feel like you know what's going to happen. With featured guests like bookmakers, Odyssey insiders and bet MGM experts, you always feel like you got a fresh take on the action. And your friends, your buddies at the bar or in your group chat, you know what they're going to be thinking? Where'd you get that information from? Where'd you get that? It's from the Daily Tip. Uh. Feel like you're an insider, that you know the ins and outs of sports betting. And you know what? You're right, I mean, Watching the game on a Tuesday night, the game's a blowout, but there's always an angle that you can figure out a way to get in on the action. So as much fun as it is to bet on the game, it's even more fun when you got the inside scoop and listen to Michael and Chelsea. If you're ready to bet with an edge, tune into the Daily Tip presented by BetMGM. Listen weekdays in the morning from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. Eastern on Odyssey, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.